We started into a new series last week to talk about inclusion. And you know, inclusion is so important, isn't it? In every area of life, inclusion is so important. You know, they talk about uh, inclusion. It's a buzzword, actually, uh, these days uh, for including everybody of all shapes and, and makes and, and all different choices. And uh, it's, it's a buzzword at the moment. But inclusion should never be a buzzword in the church because the church was created to be inclusive. And it's so important for us as a church to be an inclusive bunch of people. We got to be inclusive. We got to have space for everybody uh, of all types, shapes, uh, of all uh, backgrounds, of of all different types. We just got to be inclusive. Amen? There is nobody who hasn't got a place in the church. Isn't that true? Like in, in, in areas of life, you can have men's clubs or even women's clubs. And you have, you have uh, kids' clubs, and, and they are exclusive, and that's fine in certain areas that they need to be exclusive. But, but we in the church, we are not called to be exclusive. We're called to be inclusive of everybody from everywhere, from all walks, from all backgrounds, from all religious backgrounds. Even. You know that? We are called to be inclusive of people from all religious backgrounds or no religious backgrounds. I'm so glad that I've got friends that don't believe in God. You might be shocked at that, but I am glad. I'm glad that I have friends that I can talk to that don't believe in God because that means I'm including them. You know one of the biggest criticisms people in Jesus' day had of Jesus? You know what his biggest criticism was? That he was a friend of sinners. Amen? Jesus hung around sinners. He hung around unbelievers. He hung around the people that the religious people of his day wouldn't hang around. And one of the biggest criticisms that the religious people of his day had about Jesus was he was a friend of sinners. He hung around the drug addicts. He hung around the prostitutes. He hung around the poor, the tax collectors, the lepers. He hung around sinners. And not that, you know, we're to spend all of our time hanging around sinners because, you know, that's not good either. We should have Christian friends and we should hang around Christian friends because who knows when you get into the company of a Christian friend, it's great. Because, you know, you can have good conversation there, iron sharpens iron, you know, you can encourage each other, and that's great. But why do we hang around other Christians? To encourage ourselves to go out to minister to unbelievers. Amen? We were commissioned and we were called to go into this world and minister to unbelievers, to include them in our life. Amen? That's what we're commissioned to do. So for, in this series, we're talking about inclusion, about how we as a church can do it better. Because you know what? As good as you might be at something, you can always do it better. So I want us as a church to do inclusion better. To include our neighbors, our our work colleagues, the people that we know of casually, even to include them in our lives. Not just to look at them as, as people of other beliefs or no beliefs. To look at them as people that Jesus died for. Amen? Because Jesus died for all the world. Everyone. Those who are here and those who are not here. And we are called to be people who include those people. Amen? We're not exclusive. We're not just for ourselves, a happy, clappy club. Amen? We are and we exist for the church. It's the only organization in the world that exists for people who are not already members. Amen? That's us. We exist for the community of Enniscorty and Bunclody and Ferns and Wexford, Gorey, New Ross, all around us. That's why we exist. Amen? We exist for those who are not already here. 
And it is so important, amen? It's so important that we have Jesus' heart on reaching those people who are not already members of his church. Amen? I want to look at two stories today that we find in Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> talking about Jesus' first days in his public ministry. Where did I put my Ishka? Here we go. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture today, so I need to have a clear throat. Praise God. See, I haven't talked very much this morning already, so I just need to clear my voice. Let's look over there in Luke chapter 4 at some of the very early days of Jesus' public ministry. In verse 16, we take it up. It says, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So <clears throat> here's Jesus. Goes into the synagogue that he's raised in, basically. This is the synagogue that Jesus was raised in, probably dedicated in. Uh, this, this, is, this is where Jesus was raised as, as a boy in this synagogue. Everybody in this synagogue knew him. He was well known. No one asking each other, elbowing each other, saying, who's your man? You know, they, they all knew him. This is Jesus' synagogue where he was raised. And he was handed the scroll of what we know is the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he goes to what we know today is chapter 61. And he reads the first few lines of chapter 61 in the book of Isaiah. And then he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant. Now, I want you all to get a very uh, um, picture, our 3D picture of what we're talking about this morning, okay? So can everybody see Jesus there in the synagogue, handed the scroll, opens the scroll, reads the the, the part we know as Isaiah chapter 61. Okay, you all with me? Okay. Verse 20, second part of it says, And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the carpenter's son. And as the carpenter's son, as the one who they've known since he's a boy, this little chap now that's grown up to be a man, okay, he has just declared to everybody in the synagogue, everybody in his own hometown, that he is the promised Messiah. That's why everybody was looking at him. Okay, they're trying to figure it out, what's going on here. Verse 21 says, And Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they started to reason among themselves, and they tried to process what Jesus had just said, and I love how the message version of the Bible interprets verse 22. And let's have a look at what the, verse, the message version says. It, says. it says, All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, Isn't this Joseph's son? The one we've known since he was a kid. Now they were amazed at the fantastic words and the gracious words and the life-filled words that Jesus had just spoken in their midst, but they couldn't process how these amazing words were coming out of 
Someone who they wiped their nose when he was a five-year-old. Or someone who they helped out when he was a child, picked him up off the ground, maybe put a band-aid on his knee when he'd fallen. They couldn't figure how someone that they knew were familiar with, Joseph's son, the carpenter's son, maybe someone who had, because Jesus himself was a carpenter, maybe someone who had, had built them as stairs in the last couple of years. Or someone who had helped them out with a carpentry work, fixed a table or a chair that had a wonky leg. They couldn't figure out how, how this young fella that they knew was speaking such gracious words in their presence. They were all amazed and they actually couldn't receive what he was saying because of their familiarity with him. Verse 23 says, And Jesus said to them, You will surely say this, pro this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your home country. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which was outside of Israel, to a woman, a Gentile woman, who was a widow. And there was many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, a Gentile, and a Syrian. Okay, so what's Jesus doing here? What's Jesus saying here? You see, it seemed like, you know, when, when Jesus stood up spoke to speak first in his own hometown, that they, they, were kind of, they were kind of okay with what he said. They were just trying to reason why somebody that they knew so well was saying so many gracious things. But, but what Jesus is actually doing here now is, is Jesus is actually predicting what's going to happen to himself in a few minutes. And he's actually, uh, he's actually trying to preempt what's going to happen. Okay? <clears throat> you see, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what they were going to do. And he knew when they were going to do what was going to happen that he wouldn't get an opportunity to explain to them why he was saying the things he was saying and doing the things he was doing. Because he knew that in a few minutes they were going to try and kill him. Okay? So he needed to get it out before then because he knew that in the process of him trying to kill him, he wouldn't get a chance to say what he was going to say. Everybody understand that? Explain it to me later. You see, Jesus said to them that I am the promised Messiah. I am, yes, I am the carpenter's son. Yes, I'm someone that you've known since I was a snotty little kid. But now I am the Messiah. And I am here to set Israel free, but not just Israel, I've also come to set the Gentiles free too. That's why he threw in that story there about Elijah and the widow, Gentile, and Naaman with Elisha, the leper, Syrian, another Gentile. Jesus said, you know, when, when Elijah, he wasn't sent to uh, the starving people of Israel. No, he was sent to a Gentile. And he said, Elisha, he, he didn't heal any of the lepers that we had in Israel at the time, but he, but he only healed one leper, and that was a, a Syrian Gentile. So Jesus was preparing him for saying, hey, listen, I've come to save Israel, but I've also come to save the Gentiles. And this is why they were ready to kill him. 
Jesus said when he was standing there, he said, he said uh, um, from Isaiah 61, he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to pro proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You lost yet. Stick with me for a little bit. We're, gonna, we're, we're on a little bit of a journey here and it'll all make sense now in a few minutes. Jesus said, I'm here to set you all free and to set your enemies free. So, those people in the synagogue that day who knew Jesus since he was a child, they didn't take it very well, did they? No. Because verse 28 says, And all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the bow of the hill, which their city was built on, that they might throw him over the cliff. They were ready to kill him. Why were they ready to kill him? Because they were offended by him. Why were they offended? Because he is saying that I am the Messiah. I am the one anointed by God to come and save Israel. But what they were doubly offended by, he said, not only am I coming to save the people of Israel, I'm also coming to save the Gentiles, the people that you dislike, the people that you hate. Verse 30 says, Then passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. You see, Jesus needed to tell them what he was going to do before they were ready to kill him. Amen? Because he knew he wouldn't get a chance afterwards. What Jesus was saying, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one anointed by God to come and save Israel. But I'm also coming to save the Samaritans. I'm also coming to save the Romans. I'm also coming to save your enemies who don't believe in me, who don't trust in me. I'm also coming to save the Gentiles. And that got them mad. And they tried to kill him. Jesus is saying, I've come for you, but I'm also coming for others. I'm coming for the outsider. So get over it. Amen? Isn't it amazing that in day one of Jesus' ministry, they're already trying to kill him? Day one. They're trying to kill Jesus. I think Jesus could be forgiven for thinking that maybe he should have stuck to carpentry. I remember the first time that I stood up in church to give a message. It was about 25 years ago. I was only a Christian a couple of years, and I, I, I didn't know a whole lot. I was learning. And I was asked by my pastor at the time, he said, in a couple of weeks' time, he said, will you give us a, a, a short exhortation in church before the main message? And I said, okay, no problem. So for the next two weeks, I, I, I studied on the topic of heaven. Everything I could find out, everything that I could glean from the Word of God, I, I put into a, a short 13-minute message on heaven. And then two weeks after that, I stood up in, in the church in front of about 15 people, and I, and I gave them this message that I'd studied out talking about heaven. Now, I don't know, looking back, how accurate I was. I don't know how good it was. I don't know what my delivery was like. I have... No idea. I have the tape. I haven't listened to it. <laughs> Probably a good thing. But I can tell you for sure one thing. Nobody fired tomatoes at me that night. Nobody heckled me. Nobody dragged me out of the pulpit that night to try and throw me over the bridge. 
Thank God. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I'm still here. Now, Jesus could have been forgiven if he'd taken a few days off after his first day in ministry. After all, they'd already tried to kill him. He could have been forgiven for maybe taking a week off and just, let me just get my thoughts together. Let me figure this thing out. Maybe, Lord, am I doing the right thing? You know, did I say the right thing? Did I annoy people? Did I, did I hurt people? Did I offend people? Maybe I should have said it differently. But that's not what Jesus did, did he? He went got straight back into the saddle, and he moved on to the next village, to the next town. We continue on reading in, in verse 31. It says, Now Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now we're already seeing a bit of a shift between the two different towns. In, in, in Capernaum, now they're astonished at the authority of his teaching. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a, a, a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, for what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him in their midst, they came out of him, and it did not hurt him. They were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. I mean, straight away, probably the first week, that, the week after they tried to kill him, Jesus goes back into the synagogue up the road, and he goes in there straight away, and he starts to teach them there. And everyone sitting in the congregation that day were sitting back, and they were going, Wow! What a teacher. They were probably looking over at their, 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 their regular leader and looking at him thinking, why don't you teach like he does? It's a problem. But Jesus taught him with authority. And everyone was astonished at the authority that he taught out of the Word of God. All of a sudden, a man pipes up in the corner and he's, he's troubled by a demon starts to call Jesus out, and Jesus immediately casts the demon out of him. Look at the power of God already in action in Jesus' ministry because people were expecting something from him. Amen? It says then uh, in verse 37, it says, And a report about him went into every place in the surrounding region. They started to talk about him. They started talking among themselves about him. They started to tell their friends about him. So you can only imagine how many more people were there the next week. And it says, And Jesus arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. And they made a request of him concerning her. And he stood over her and he rebuked, rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and she served him. And when the sun was setting, now get this, right, okay? When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Every one of them. And demons came out of many, crying out, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Isn't that amazing? The different reactions that Jesus got from day one to day two, from the first city to the second city that he went into, 
first city, tried to kill him. And I mean, that was his own hometown. People knew him. I'm sure they liked him. I'm sure he came from a lovable family. I'm sure people were fond of him. But as soon as he stood into his ministry to try and, and minister into his own hometown, to try to kill him. So he moves off to the next town, the next village, and he ministers there, and they're astonished by him. They're blown away by the power and the authority of his word, and immediately he casts out a demon of someone in the temple, and, and then he goes into Simon's house, and, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and, and he heals her there and then on the spot, and, and word goes out all across the whole region that, that this, this guy, Jesus, from down the road, he's come here into our village, and, and he's praying for people. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. And all of a sudden, everyone in the area goes and gathers anyone that's sick in their families, sick that they know, and they, they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus prays over every one of them. He heals every one of them. Casts out any demons that's there. Such is the power of God when people come with expectations to him. Amen? See, I think a lot of time we don't see the power of God manifesting today because we don't go to God with an expectation of receiving. Amen? What's the word of God says? Believe and you will receive. Amen? These people in Capernaum went to Jesus believing that they would receive. And they received the power of God. Amen? What a reaction. What an amazing reaction. People healing and delivering. People left, right, and center, just down the road from his own hometown. And it's really no surprise when you read through the Gospels that this is the very town that Jesus based most of his ministry out of because of their acceptance of him in Capernaum. Verse 42 says, Now when, now when it was day, the next day, he departed and he went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. I'm not surprised, are you? I mean, he just come in and he just cast out all the demons in the village. He just healed every sick person in the village. I mean, he spoke with authority. This, this is the kind of guy you want to keep around, isn't it? So when Jesus went out to this, this deserted place, they sent out a delegation after him to try and convince Jesus, saying, hey, listen, you know, we want you to stay here. We want you to stay in our community. You know, what can we do for you? What do you want? What do you need? You need a house? We give you a house. We build you a house. What do you need? You need a chariot? A chariot? We'll give you a chariot. We'll get you the best one. We'll get you the finest horses. We want you to stay because, you know what? We're going to have people sick in the future. We're going to have you know, demon-possessed people in the future. We're going we're to need you. We, we want to hear you preach with authority. Please, please, please stay. Whatever you need, we'll get it for you. But Jesus didn't stay, did he? If it was me, I probably would have stayed. I would have stayed. I would have said, yeah, sign me up. I want a house over by the lake. I'll take the best horse. But Jesus didn't do that, was he? Did he? He didn't do that because he wasn't motivated by staying in one place. So what was Jesus' motivation? Jesus' motivation was to minister to others. Verse 43 tells us, But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Jesus' purpose was to minister to others. Amen? Amen. 
not just the people in Capernaum. He could have stayed there. I mean, he could have built a ministry there. And he did build a ministry from there, but he could have built a whole big ministry there where everybody came into him. We've seen a film there the other week. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, if not, you know about it anyway. It's a film about Elvis, a new film about Elvis. And Elvis had a problem in, in, in his, in his um, career. His manager didn't want Elvis to go on tour. His manager wanted to plant Elvis in Las Vegas and leave him there. He had signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal for Elvis to sing in, in whatever, I don't know, whatever casino it was in, in Las Vegas. And he was going to, as far as his manager was concerned, he was going to do that for the rest of his life. But Elvis was loved all over the world. He was loved in Europe. He was loved in Ireland. He was loved in, in Germany and England and Japan and, and South America. Everybody loved Elvis. And Elvis wanted to take the God-given gift that he had out and tour all across the world with it. But his manager didn't want him to do him, so he restricted him. And he never did. Elvis never toured outside of just a few dates here and there in the U.S. Other than that, you had to go to Elvis in Las Vegas. This is what the people of Capernaum were trying to do with Jesus. They were trying to sign him up that's not funny. Sorry. They were trying to sign Jesus up for a permanent residency in Capernaum. But Jesus said, no. i got to take this message, this good news of the kingdom of God, out to the whole world. Preach to others. Amen? That was good, actually, wasn't it? Praise God. You see, here's the thing that Jesus knew. That for every rejection he was going to get in one place, there was people in another place waiting to receive his message. For every rejection he got in his hometown, there was people like Capernaum waiting to say yes to his message. Jesus said he was called to the whole world, and Jesus traveled his whole area to places where they accepted him, to places where they wanted to stone him. He kept going. He, kept, he, he, he went to some places where he ministered to the ones and twos. Other places he ministered to the thousands. Amen? But did that stop him? No. He kept going. Because he said, I must take this good news of the kingdom of God to others also. Church, we're called to be others-minded. We're called to not just gather a whole big crowd here to ourselves and worship together and have great church together and be all happy here together. And that's great. But God has called us to the others. Even today, now with the advent of technology, you know, anyone from anywhere can watch our messages on Sunday morning. They can click in there to Facebook or YouTube and they can watch what we're doing. And that's great. But we want to bring those people in. We want to go out into our community, into Enniscorthy, Wexford, Bunclody, Ferns, everywhere all around us. We want to go into our community and tell people of the good news of the kingdom of God. Because it's good news, amen? I mean, we see enough bad news on the television all the time. Television is full of bad news. And everyone is quick to tell the bad news, aren't they? I find that the news and people are very slow sometimes to tell the good news. But we have been entrusted with the good news. We have been commissioned with the good news. I mean, the last thing that Jesus said to his followers 
before he departed this world, he said, go into all the world and tell them the good news. Preach the gospel. And he said, don't make it exclusive. Don't just preach the gospel to people you like. Don't just preach the gospel to people of your same color, of your same nationality. Don't just preach the gospel to those people who may call themselves Christians, but may be caught in religion. He said, go and preach the gospel to everyone. Every creature, he said. Whether they look like you or they don't look like you, he said, go and tell them this good news. And this is what Jesus himself did. And we're meant to model what we did after what Jesus did. We are to be ones who are motivation for what we do. Every time we get together is to include more others in our mix. Amen? When we leave here, we're meant to go look for others. Look for opportunities to, to tell people about the good news. I mean, you hear some bad news and maybe you, maybe you think you're first in on the bad news. You can't wait to tell people. Such and such a person is dead. There was an accident on such and such a road. Everyone is, is so quick to try and tell the bad news. I wonder if we were half as quick to tell people about the good news. I mean, bad news saves no one. Amen? Just causes more fear. Causes more anxiety. But good news brings joy, doesn't it? Brings, bring, brings happiness to people's hearts. It brings, it brings people a joy when they hear good news. We are called to be people who are to be bringers of good news. Let me tell you about what Jesus did for you. Let me tell you about what the, that crucifix that you wear around your neck. Let me tell you about what that means. Let me tell you what Jesus did for you on the cross. Do you know that that crucifix that you have hanging around your neck or the one you have hanging on the wall, do you know what that means? That means that Jesus, the Son of God, hung on that cross for you. He shed his blood for you to cover your sins so that God is no longer angry at you or angry with you. He's no longer holding your sin against you. He's now forgiven you of your sins because of what Jesus did for you. You don't longer, no longer have to look forward to a future of wrath. You can look forward to a future with him. That's good news, Amen. That's good news. I mean, if we package the good news in, in, in a good news way, see, the problem is, you see, there's too many people out there want to package the good news with a stick. Amen? Let me tell you about Jesus. Bang, bang, bang. You're a sinner going to hell. That's not the way to tell someone about Jesus. Amen? I mean, we have people hanging out on streets in our county trying to beat people with the stick of Jesus. Jesus didn't beat people with a stick. Amen? He was beaten so that we don't have to be beaten. Amen? When we come to tell the good news about Jesus, you just need to tell, you know what? Jesus loved you so much, he died on the cross for you. And if you just loved him and believed in him and trusted in him, he's got a place in heaven prepared for you. But you see, there's too many people out there think that, you know, well, I'm other-minded. I go out and tell people about Jesus. Oh, you do, do you? Yeah, I, I tell people that they're sinners and they're going to hell. 
Show me one place in the Word of God where Jesus whenever went up to anybody and said, you're a sinner going to hell. Did he say to the woman caught in the act of adultery? Oh, he could have. I mean, he said, let the one without sin cast his first stone. So who was the only one in that crowd that day that didn't have any sin? And it wasn't Mary. The only one in that crowd that day that hadn't sinned was Jesus. So he was saying, let the one without sin cast the first stone. So he could have if he'd wanted to. But he didn't. Because Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came to give the world grace. Amen? And he gave the woman caught in the act of adultery grace. He gave the man caught in the act of adultery grace too. We don't read about that though, do we? Because he came to show grace. So when we go into all the world to minister this good news, we bring it with grace. We tell people God loves you. And he loves you so much that despite everything that you've done, despite all of your sins, despite all of your faults, despite all of your failings, he sent his only son Jesus to die for you. And he's not there standing waiting to judge you now. He's not there writing down all of your sins and transgressions so that next time he sees you, he can go, well, what about this time? What about that time? We see that when the prodigal son came back to the father. The prodigal son had stolen half of the father's money, stolen half of all he had. But yes, yes, when the prodigal son got near to the father's home, and he had already pre-prepared his statement for the father. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Just make me a servant. I'll be happy. And I food my belly and a roof over my head. But when the father, which is a type of our father, our God, saw the prodigal son, he saw his, he knew he'd sinned against him. I mean, he lost half his kingdom. He lost half his wealth. He knew everything that he'd stolen from him and wasted. Yet the word of God says he sprinted towards him and he threw his arms around him and he loved on him. He threw his robe around him, which was, which was basically saying, you know, I'm taking my righteousness off of me and I'm throwing it around you. He took his ring off his finger and put it on his finger, basically saying, everything that I have is yours. And this was ever long before the son, the sinner, the prodigal son, had even got an opportunity to apologize. You see, the father loves his children. Those who received him and those who are yet to receive him. And this is what Jesus is other people minded. And this is why we need to be other people minded. Last scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Church, we are meant to be other-minded, other people-minded. So this week when we go about everything we have to do, bear it in mind that everyone you come in contact with, Jesus died for. Amen? Praise God. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Glory to God. I want to give you a chance this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity this morning. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it says, you will be saved. It's that easy. Oh no, I need to get down on my hands and knees and I need to repent of all of my sins and I need to beg God for forgiveness. I need to go through the list of all the wrongs that I've ever done. No, it doesn't say that. It says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. It's that easy. And it's salvation. Who's it for? Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you whoever? Is your neighbor a whoever? Is your work colleague a whoever? Is, is everybody a whoever? Everyone's a whoever. We're all whoever's. So it says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you are not sure this morning, uh, if that's me, that if I have ever called on the name of the Lord and you want to know that, you know what, when my time comes, I'm going to Him. I want us to pray this prayer this morning and believe it. Believe it in your heart, the Word of God says, and confess it with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. So we're going to pray this really simple prayer. We're all going to pray it together. Heavenly Father, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, save me. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit so that I can live for you. Thank you for this new life. I give you mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise God. You know, the Word of God says that if you, if you pray that prayer and if you believe, if you truly believe it, that Jesus died for me, it says, you're saved, it says. Simple as that. It's not complicated. It says you're saved. You have an eternity with Him. Amen? That's the good news, amen? That's the best news that you can ever hear. That your, your future is secure. See, everybody wants to know that their future is secure. Whether it's their financial security, financial security or other securities in their life, or home or whatever. Everyone wants to know about their future security. Well, if you pray that prayer this morning for the first time, I want to tell you that your future is secure in Him. Amen?